Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. I'd like to introduce a new author to you today, Kate Douglas Wiggin. She was an American writer and educator, best known for her much-beloved classics, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm and Rose of the River. Kate enjoyed a happy childhood in Philadelphia, although it was marred by the Civil War and the death of her father. After her father passed away, her mother relocated the family to Portland, Maine, where her mother remarried. Although Wigan received a sporadic education, it was still more than many women received at that time. She became a dedicated educator. She and her sister created a training school for kindergarten teachers in the 1880s. She married twice. She devoted much of her adult life to the welfare of children, even though she had no children herself. When she died at the age of 66, her ashes were scattered over the Seiko River in Maine at her request. This is actually a multi-part story and we offer parts one and two today. And now, The Romance of a Christmas Card, by Kate Douglas Wiggin. Chapter One It was Christmas Eve, and a Saturday night, when Mrs. Larrabee, the Beulah minister's wife, opened the door of the study where her husband was deep in the revision of his next day's sermon, and thrust in her comely head framed in a knitted, framed in a knitted rigolette. Luther, I'm going to run down to Letty's. We think the twins are going to have measles, it's the only thing they haven't had, and lefty spirits are not up to concert pitch. You look like a blessed old prophet tonight, my dear. What's the text? The minister pushed back his spectacles and ruffled his gray hair. Isaiah 6, 8 And I heard the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send? Then said I, Here am I. Send me. It doesn't sound a bit like Christmas somehow. It has the spirit even if it hasn't the sound, said the minister. There's always so little spare money in the village that we get less and less accustomed to sharing what we have with others. I want to remind the people that there are different ways of giving and that the bestowing of one's self in service and good deeds can be the best of all gifts. Lefty Boynton won't need the sermon. Don't be late, Reba. Of course not, she answered. When was I ever late? It has just struck seven, and I'll be back by eight to choose the hymns. And, oh, Luther, I have some fresh ideas for Christmas cards, and I'm going to try my luck with them in the march of trade. There are hundreds of thousands of such things sold nowadays, and if the Boston Banner likes my verses well enough to send me the paper regularly, why shouldn't the people who make cards like them too, especially when I can draw and paint my own pictures? If the parish knew what a ready pen you have, they'd suspect that you help me in my sermons. The question is, will the publishers send you a check or only a copy of your card? I should relish a check, I confess. But, oh, I should like almost as well a beautifully colored card, Luther, with a picture of my own inventing on it, my own verse, an R.L. in tiny letters somewhere in the corner. It would make such a lovely Christmas present. And I should be so proud, inside, of course, not outside, I would cover my halo with my hat so that nobody in the congregation would ever notice it. The minister laughed. Consult, Letty, my dear. David used to be in some sort of picture business in Boston. She will know, perhaps, where to offer your card. At the introduction of a new theme into the conversation, Mrs. Larrabee slipped into a chair by the door, her lantern swinging in her hand. David can't be as near Boston, or we should hear of him sometimes. A pretty sort of brother to be meandering footloose over the earth, and Letty working her fingers to the bone to support his children. Twins at that! It was just like David Gilman to have twins. 
doesn't it seem incredible that he can let Christmas go by without a message? I dare say he doesn't even remember that his babies were born on Christmas Eve. To be sure, he's only Letty's half-brother, but after all, they grew up together, and they're nearly the same age. You always judge David a little severely, Reba. Don't despair of reforming any man till you see the grass growing over his bare bones. I always have a soft spot in my heart for him when I remember his friendship for my son Dick, but that was before your time. Ah, oh, these boys, these boys. The minister's voice quavered. We give them our very life blood. We love them, cherish them, pray over them, do our best to guide them. Yet they take the path that leads from home. In some way, God knows how, we fail to call out the return love, or even the filial duty and respect. Well, we won't talk about it, Reba. My business is to breathe the breath of life into my text. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Letty certainly continues to say it heroically, whatever her troubles. Yes, Letty is so ready for service that she will always be sent, till the end of time. But if David ever has an interview with his Creator, I can hear him say, Here I am, Lord. Send Letty. The minister laughed again. He laughed freely and easily nowadays. His first wife had been a sort of understudy for a saint, and after a brief but depressing connubial experience she had died, leaving him with a boy of six, a boy who already, at that tender age, seemed to cherish a passionate aversion to virtue in any form, the result, perhaps, of daily doses of the catechism administered by an abnormally pious mother. The minister had struggled valiantly with his paternal and parochial cares for twelve lonely years when he met, wooed, and won, very much to his astonishment and exaltation, Reba Crosby. There never was a better bargain driven. She was forty-five by the family Bible, but twenty-five in face, heart, and mind, while he would have been printed as sixty in Who's Who in New Hampshire, although he was far older in patience and experience, and wisdom. The miniature was spiritual, frail, and a trifle prone to self-deprecation. The minister's new wife was spirited, vigorous, courageous, and clever. She was also Western-born, college-bred, good as gold, and invincibly, incurably happy. The minister grew younger every year, for Reba doubled his joys and halved his burdens, tossing them from one of her fine shoulders to the other as if they were feathers. She swept into the quiet village life of Beulah like a salt sea breeze. She infused a new spirit into the bleak church sociables and made them positively agreeable functions. The choir seized from wrangling. The Sunday school plucked up courage and flourished like a green bay tree. She managed the deacons. She braced up the missionary societies. She captivated the parish. She cheered the depressed and depressing old ladies and cracked jokes with the invalids. "'Ain't she a mite too jolly for a minister's wife?' questioned Mrs. Ossian Popham, who was a professional pessimist. "'If this world's a place of want, woe, wantonness, and wickedness, same as you claim, Maria, I don't see how a minister's wife can be too jolly,' was her husband's cheerful reply. "'Look how she's melted up the ice in both congregations, so as the other church is most willing we should prosper, so long as Miss Larrabee stays here and we don't get too far ahead of them in attendance. Me for the smiles, Maria. And Ash Popham was right, for Reba Larrabee convinced the members of the rival church, the rivalry being the two being in rigidity of creed, not in persistency in good works. 
that there was a room in heaven for at least two denominations, and said that if they couldn't unite in this world, maybe they'd get round to it in the next. Finally, she saved Letya Boyton's soul alive by giving her a warm, understanding friendship, and she even contracted to win back the minister's absent son some time or other, and convince him of the error of his ways. "'I'll let Dick alone a little longer, Luther,' she would say. "'Don't hurry him, for he won't come home so long as he's a failure. It would please the village too much, and Dick hates the village. He doesn't accept our point of view, that we must love our enemies and bless them that despitefully use us. The village did despitefully use Dick, and for that matter, David Gilman, too. They were criticized, gossiped about, judged without mercy. Nobody believed in them. Nobody ever praised them. And what is that about praise being the fructifying sun in which our virtues ripen, or something like that? I'm not quoting it right, but I wish I'd said it. Their mistakes were magnified, their mad pranks exaggerated. If I'd been married to you, my dear, while Dick was growing up, I wouldn't have let you keep him here in this little backwater of life. He needed more room, more movement. They wouldn't have been so down on him in Racine, Wisconsin. Mrs. Larrabee lighted her lantern, closed the door behind her, and walked briskly down the lonely road that led from the parsonage at Beulah Corner to Letitia Boynton's house. It was bright moonlight, and the ground was covered with light-fallen snow, but the lantern habit was a fixed one among Beulah ladies, who, even when they were not widows or spinsters, made their evening calls mostly without escort. The light of a lantern not only enabled one to pick the better side of a bad road, but would illuminate the face of any male stranger who might be of a burglarious or murderous disposition. Reba Larrabee was not a timid person. Indeed, she was wont to say that men were so scarce in Beulah that unless they were out-and-out ruffians, it would be an inspiration to meet a few, even if it were only to pass them in the middle of the road. There was light in the meeting-house as she passed, and then there was a long stretch of shining white silence unmarked by any human habitation till she came to the tumble-down black cottage inhabited by Door Button Davis, as the little old man was called in the village. In the distance she could see Osh Popham's two-story house brilliantly illuminated by kerosene lamps, and as she drew nearer, she even descried Ossian himself seated at the cabinet organ in his shirt-sleeves, practicing the Christmas anthem, his daughter holding a candle to the page while she struggled to adjust a circuitous alto to her father's tenor. On the hither side of the Popham house, and quite obscured by it, stood Letitia Boynton's one-story gray cottage. It had a clump of tall cedar trees for background, and the bare branches of the elms in front were hung lightly with snow garlands. As Mrs. Larrabee came closer, she set down her lantern and looked fixedly at the familiar house as if something new arrested her gaze. It looks like a little night light, she thought, and how queer of Letty to be sitting at an open window. Nearer still she crept, yet not so near as to startle her friend. A tall brass candlestick, with a lighted tallow candle in it, stood on the table in the parlor window, but the room in which Letty sat was unlighted save by the fire on the hearth, which gleamed brightly behind the quaint andirons, Hessian soldiers of iron, painted in gay colors. Over the mantel hung the portrait of Letty's mother, a benign figure clad in black silk, the handsome head topped by a snowy muslin cap with floating strings. Just round the corner of the fireplace was a half-open door leading into a tiny bedroom, and the flickering flame lighted the heads of two sleeping children, arms interlocked, 
bright tangled curls flowing over one pillow. Nettie herself sat in a low chair by the open window wrapped in an old cape of ruddy brown homespun, from the folds of which her delicate head rose like a flower in a bouquet of autumn leaves. One elbow rested on the table, her chin in the cup of her hand, her head was turned away a little so that one could see only the knot of bronze hair, the curve of a cheek, and the sweep of an eyelash. "'What a picture!' thought Reba. "'The very thing for my Christmas card. It would do almost without a change, if only she is willing to let me use her.' "'Wake up, Letty!' she called. "'Come and let me in. Why, your front door isn't closed.' "'Oh, the fire smoked a little when I first lighted it,' said Letty. "'rising when her friend entered, "'and then softly shutting the bedroom door "'that the children might not waken. "'The night is so mild, and the room so warm, "'I couldn't help opening the window "'to look at the moon on the snow. "'Sit down, Reba. "'How good of you to come "'when you've been rehearsing "'for the Christmas tree exercises "'all the afternoon.'" We'll return to Chapter 2 right after these sponsor messages. And now Chapter 2. The Romance of a Christmas Card by Kate Douglas Wiggin It's never good of me to come to talk with you, Letty, and the minister's wife sank into a comfortable seat and took off her rigolette. Enough virtue has gone out of me today to Christianize an entire heathen nation. Oh, how I wish Luther would go and preach to a tribe of cannibals somewhere and make me superintendent of the Sabbath school. How I should like to deal, just for a change, with some simple problem like the undesirability and indigestibility involved in devouring your next-door neighbor. Now I pass my life in saying, Love your neighbor as yourself, which is far more difficult than to say, Don't eat your neighbor, it's such a disgusting habit, and wrong besides. Though I dare say they do it half the time because the market is bad. The first thing I'd do would be to get my cannibals to raise sheep. If they ate more mutton, they wouldn't eat so many missionaries." Letty laughed. You're so funny, Reba dear, and I was so sad before you came in. Don't let the minister take you to the cannibals until after I die. No danger. Letty, do you remember I told you I've been trying my hand on some verses for a Christmas card? Yes. Have you sent them anywhere? Not yet. I couldn't think of the right decoration and color scheme, and was afraid to trust it all to the publishers. Now I found just what I need for one of them, and you gave it to me, Letty. I? Yes, you, tonight, as I came down the road. The house looked so quaint, backed by the dark cedars, and the moon and the snow made everything dazzling. I could see the firelight through the open window, the Hessian soldier andirons, your mother's portrait, the children asleep in the next room, and you, wrapped in your cape, waiting or watching for something or somebody. I wasn't watching or waiting. I was dreaming, said Letty, hurriedly. Well, you looked as if you were watching anyway, and I thought if I were painting the picture I would call it expectancy, or the vigil, or sentry duty. However, when I make you into a card, Letty, nobody will know what the figure at the window means until they read my verses. I'll give you the house, the room, the andirons, and even Mother's portrait, but you don't mean that you want to put me on the card? And Letty turned like a startled deer as she rose and brushed a spark from the hearth rug. No, not the whole of you, of course, though I'm not clever enough to get a likeness even if I wished. I merely want to make a color sketch of your red-brown cape, your hair that matches it, your ear, an inch of cheek, and the eyelashes of one eye, 
"'If you please, ma'am.' "'Well, that doesn't sound quite so terrifying.' "'And Letty looked more manageable. "'Nobody will ever know that a real person sat at a real window "'and that I saw her there. "'But when I send the card with a finished picture "'and my verse is beautifully lettered on it, "'the printing people will be more likely to accept it. "'And if they do, shall I have a dozen to give to my Bible class?' "'asked Letty in a wheedling voice. "'You shall have more than that. "'I'm willing to divide my magnificent profits with you. "'You will have furnished the picture and I the verses. "'It's wonderful, Letty. "'It's providential. "'You just are a Christmas guard tonight. "'It seems so strange that you even put the lighted candle in the window "'when you never heard my verse. "'The candle caught my eye first, "'and I remember the Christmas customs we studied for the church festival.' the light to guide the Christ child as he walks through the dark streets on the eve of Mary. Yes, I thought of that, said Letty, flushing a little. I put the candle there first so that the house shouldn't be all dark when the Pophams went by to choir meeting. And just then, I, I remembered, and I was glad I did it. These are my verses, Letty. And Reba's voice was soft as she turned her face away and looked at the flames mounting upward in the chimney. My door is on the latch tonight. The hearth fire is aglow. I seem to hear a swift passing feet. The Christ child in the snow. My heart is open wide tonight for stranger, kith, or kin. I would not bar a single door where love might enter in. There was a moment's silence, and Letty broke it. It means the sort of love that Christ child brings, with peace and goodwill in it. I'm glad to be a part of that card, Reba, so long as nobody knows me. And... Here she made an impetuous movement and, covering her eyes with her hands, burst into a despairing flood of confidence, the words crowding each other and tumbling out of her mouth as if they feared to be stopped. After I put the candle on the table, I could not rest for thinking. I wasn't ready in my soul to light the Christ child on his way. I was bitter and unresigned. It's three years tonight since the children were born, and each year I have hoped and waited and waited and hoped thinking that David might remember. David, my brother, their father. Then the fire on the hearth, the moon and the snow quieted me, and I felt that I wanted to open the door just a little. No one will notice that it's ajar, I thought, but there's a touch of welcome in it anyway. And after a few minutes I said to myself, It's no use. David won't come. But I'm glad the firelight shines on Mother's picture, for he loved Mother and if she hadn't died when he was scarcely more than a boy, things might have been different. The reason I opened the bedroom door, something I never do when the babies are asleep, was because I needed a sight of their faces to reconcile me to my duty and take the resentment out of my heart. And it did flow out, Reba, out into the stillness. It's so dazzling white outside, I couldn't bear, I couldn't bear my heart to be shrouded in a gloom. Poor Letty! and Mrs. Larrabee furtively wiped away a tear. How long since you've heard? I didn't dare ask. Not a word, not a line from him for nearly three months. And for the half year before, it was nothing but a note, sometimes with a five-dollar bill enclosed. David seems to think it the natural thing for me to look after his children, as if there could be no question of any life of my own. You began wrong, Letty. You were born a prop, and you've been propping somebody ever since. I've done nothing but my plain duty. When my mother died, there was my stepfather to nurse, 
but I was young and strong. I didn't mind, and he wasn't a burden for very long. Poor father. Then after four years came the shock of David's reckless marriage. When he asked if he might bring that girl here until her time of trial was over, it seemed to me I could never endure it. But there were only two of us left, David and I. I thought of mother, and I said yes. I remember, Letty. I had come to Beulah then. Yes, and you know what Ava was. How David, how anybody could have loved her, I cannot think. Well, he brought her, and you know how it turned out. David never saw her alive again, nor ever saw his babies after they were three days old. Still, what can you expect of a father who is barely twenty-one? If he's old enough to have children, he's old enough to notice them, said Mrs. Larrabee with her accustomed spirit. Somebody ought to jog his sense of responsibility. It's wrong for women to assume men's burdens beyond a certain point. It only makes them more selfish. If you only knew where David is, you ought to bundle the children up and express them to his address. Not a word of explanation or apology. Simply tie a tag on them, saying, Here's your twins. But I love the babies, said Letty, smiling through her tears, and David may not be in a position to keep them. Then he shouldn't have had them, retorted Reba promptly. "'especially not two of them. "'There's such a thing as a man's being too lavish with babies "'when he has no intention of doing anything for them "'but bring them into the world. "'If you had a living income, it would be one thing, "'but it makes me burn to see you stitching on coats "'to feed and clothe your half-brother's children.' "'Oh, perhaps it doesn't make any difference,' "'sighed Letty, pushing back her hair with, with an abstracted gesture. "'I gave up a good deal for the darlings once, "'but that's past and gone.' Now, after all, they're the only life I have, and I'd rather make coats for them than for myself. Letty Boynton had never said so much as this to Mrs. Larrabee in the three years of their friendship, and on her way back to the parsonage, the minister's wife puzzled a little over the look in Letty's face when she said, David seemed to think that there could be no question of any life of my own. And again, I gave up a good deal for the darlings once. Luther? Reba said to the minister, when the hymns had been chosen, the sermon pronounced excellent, and they were toasting their toes over the sitting-room fire. Luther, do you suppose there ever was anything between Letty Boynton and your son Dick? No, he answered reflectively. I don't think so. Dick always admired Letty and went to the house a great deal, but I imagine that was chiefly for David's sake, for they were as like as peas in a pod in the manner of mischief. If there had been more of a friendship between Dick and Letty, "'Dick would never have gone away from Beulah. "'Or if he had gone, "'he surely would have come back to see how Letty fared. "'A fellow yearns for news of the girl he loves "'even when he's content to let silence reign "'between him and his old father. "'What makes you think there was anything particular, Reba? "'Well, what makes anybody think anything? "'I wonder why some people are born props "'and others leaners or twiners. "'I believe the very nursing bottle "'leaned heavily against Letty "'when she lay on her infant pillow.' I didn't know her when she was a child, but I believe that when she was eight, all the other children of three and five in the village looked to her for support and guidance. It's a great vocation, that of being a prop, smiled the minister, as he peeled a red Baldwin apple, carefully preserving the spiral and eating it first. I suppose the wobbly vine thinks it's grand to be a stout trellis when it needs one to climb on, but doesn't the trellis ever want to twine, I wonder? And Reba's tone was doubtful. 
Even the trellis leans against the house, Reba. Well, Letty never gets a chance either to lean or to twine. Her family, her friends, her acquaintances, even the stranger within her gates, will pass trees, barber poles, telephone and telegraph poles, convenient corners of buildings, fence posts, ladders, and lightning rods for the sake of winding their weakness around her strength. When she sits down from sheer exhaustion, they come and prop themselves against her back. If she goes to bed, they climb on the footboard, hang a drooping head, and look her wistfully in the eye for sympathy. Prop on, prop ever, seems to be the underlying law of the universe. Poor Reba, she's talking of Letty and thinking of herself. And the minister's eyes twinkled. Well, a little, admitted his wife. "'but I'm only a village prop, not a family one, "'where you are concerned.' "'And she administered an affectionate pat to his cheek "'as she rose from her chair. "'I'm a trellis that leans against a rock.' "'Join us next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time "'for parts three and four of The Romance of a Christmas Card. "'Until then, everyone, this is your host and storyteller, "'John Hagedorn. Stay safe.' and we'll be back soon.